The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I don't think Keir Starmer could ever have the appeal to Middle England that Tony Blair had. I just think he's too wet. I do think a lot of the Conservatives that Rishi Sunak thinks he can rely on have already checked out. I think that of all the countries that had lockdowns, the government messaging in this country was probably the most irresponsible. I don't think the plate tectonics of politics are currently where they were in 1997. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The campaign's starting gun has been fired co-pilot because it's now less than a month until local elections in England on May the 4th across district councils, unitary authorities and directly elected mayors. The Tories held a low-key launch event last weekend, so low-key the press wasn't invited. But we were allowed to use a rather strange staged photo of the Prime Minister in road workers' boots, bending down and staring at a pothole in a manly fashion. (laughs) Back in May 2019, the Tories lost over a 1,000 seats and control of several councils, while the Lib Dems made gains. The outcome this time could well determine if indeed Rishi Sunak, whose popularity in the polls has lately been going up, survives to lead his party into the next general election, which will probably be in the summer or autumn of 2024. Now the Tories are in election mode, Swella Bravman, fighting to keep her seat during a boundary change, has been campaigning on small boats and talking tough on grooming gangs. Three years into Keir Starmer's leadership, Labour's now 20 points ahead. But Starmer still can't define what a woman is, which is probably the Tories' best hope. There's a lot going on, Alison. Donald Trump's been arrested, as has Nicola Sturgeon's husband, Peter Murrell, the former chief executive of the Scottish National Party, which, of course, Sturgeon previously led. But before we start, we must take a moment, surely, Alison, to reflect on the death of Nigel Lawson surely among the most consequential politicians of the late 20th century. Yes, indeed, Liam. Actually, let's, before we pay tribute to that marvellous man, we we should point out that Keir Starmer did say this week that 99.99% of women don't have a penis. So he's starting to get there, (laughs) co-pilot. I think you're quite right. This will be the hotly contested pivotal ground because Labour's been told it's got to appeal to Stevenage woman living not too far from Stevenage myself. I don't think Stevenage woman would be at all impressed to be told that any Stevenage woman has got a penis. And just as we're recording, Liam, there's an announcement that Rishi Sunak is going to write biological sex into a new piece of legislation. Very, very strange times we live in where that should ever have been hotly contested. But going back to better times, Nigel Lawson gave you his very last interview, Liam, just a few weeks ago. And I think we could all hear that he didn't think he'd be with us very much longer, part of his gift for prophecy. But he did make a very special effort to see you particularly as one of his favourite economists and journalists following in his footsteps. You had a wonderful lunch with him, didn't you? I did. It was a couple of hours long. We polished off a bottle of his favourite 
sweet, fortified French wine from Gascony, mm-hmm. known as Flock. He was on good form. He was very frail in his own words, but he still had an eye for a news story and he knew how to drive a headline, of course. And it was an honour to see him. I've been in touch with him over many, many years. We've often compared notes on economics and political issues. Mm. And it's important to me because as an A-level student, I followed Nigel Lawson's exploits closely, the medium-term financial strategy, the shadowing of the Deutschmark, the rows with Alan Walters. And to have somebody like that who you just saw on a television screen and read about in the newspapers uh, looking up on high to these huge politicians, to actually have the chance to get to know someone like that, for them to take an interest in you, it's really what journalism should be all about. You hold people to account and you criticise and judge what they're doing, but you do get quite close to people over the years and it was a real highlight of my career, such as it is, to get to know Nigel Lawson, surely one of the most important politicians of my lifetime. I'd say probably the most important politician of my lifetime who wasn't actually the Prime Minister. He was warning, wasn't he? I mean, he was very cordial about the current government, obviously, as a Conservative. He was being very careful, but I think reading between the size, we could tell that this was not the Conservative government, that a latter-day Nigel Lawson would be leading. I mean, one of the interesting things among the many tributes we've seen in the last few days was hearing that Rishi Sunak, when he himself was the Chancellor, had a framed photograph of Nigel Lawson on his wall behind his desk at the Treasury. Do you think, Liam, that Sunak has got an inner Nigel and would be a tax cutter left to his own devices? What's your thought about that? I think Sunak is a tax cutter in theory, but I'm not sure he's got the metal, the kind of intellectual grit and determination, almost the cussedness, if you like, to go against conventional wisdom, to push back against the institutions that he now leads in order to mould and shape and control those institutions, Mm. like Nigel Lawson moulded and shaped and controlled the Treasury when he was Chancellor between 1983 and 1989, pushing back all the time, not being concerned about being unpopular, because in his view, he was right. It takes a certain kind of, you could call it arrogance, you could call it intellectual determination, you could just call it leadership, to impose your will on an institution that doesn't want to go the way that you are going. And that's what Nigel Lawson did. He was the macroeconomic architect of Thatcherism. He did radically simplify our tax system, cutting the top rate of tax in one bound from 60 to 40%. It wasn't pretty, and there were downsides. There was a, a boom that followed. But the tax system has been better for it, and... When I spoke to Nigel, he said, and and you kindly quoted it in your column this week, of course, the link to that's in the show notes to this episode. He says, I don't think there's anything new to come from the Conservative Party as it now is. It's going to have to reinvent itself. And I don't see that coming soon. And he did say to me that he didn't think that Rishi Sunak was instinctively a tax cutter, even if intellectually Rishi Sunak wants to be a tax cutter, because in order to impose policies like that, you really do need to be prepared 
to push back against orthodoxy and risk unpopularity. And I think the people around Margaret Thatcher back in the day when we were growing up were very unpopular at the time. Mm. And it's only in retrospect that you can say in polite society, oh, maybe she wasn't all bad. And you know, still there, there are many people who just won't have it. Everything that she did, everything that Lawson did, all her lieutenants was wrong, 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 wrong. But I think an awful lot of people who are economically literate, frankly, in the business community, realised that we couldn't have gone on as we were in the late 1970s. And I'm yet to see from Rishi Sunak, despite all his qualities, which I know Nigel Lawson recognised, despite all his polish and raw intelligence, I'm not sure he has got the grit that Nigel Lawson had. I suppose my great political journey was from being in my dungarees with my Maggie, 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 out, 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 to actually coming to admire that government enormously and the way they pulled our country out of the mire. And I do think that, as you said, Liam, it was astonishing intellectual confidence, if not arrogance, really, of someone like Nigel Lawson, who was determined to do it his way. And I referred to it in the column. There's a wonderful online clip from Lawson debating the Carolyn Fairburn, then the CBI Director General, on Brexit. And she's whining on about how dreadful it will be. And he basically says to her, there are hundreds of countries that aren't in the European Union. and Many of them are doing a lot better than any of the countries in the European Union. It was brilliant. She said, but what's the alternative to being in the European Union? And he said... <laughs> I'll tell you briefly what the alternative is to being in the European Union. It's not being in the European (laughs) Union. And even at the Bloomberg debate, which would have been wall-to-wall Remainerville, you know, it's all sort of city people in their herd-like movements in their flash suits. Even they had to laugh at the logic, the raw, undeniable logic of what Nigel Lawson was saying. And he reiterated in that interview with me, which Planned Normal Listeners can go back to it. it's only literally three weeks ago he reiterated that of course the path isn't smooth but brexit was the only way we could go because we're too big a country we're too important to not govern ourselves i think i want to be a little bit more nigel from now on really but coming on liam to what you mentioned right at the top about the looming local elections i mean i think it is quite funny that staring down the barrel of Potholes. of the electorate. <laughs> I think we we now have this extraordinary spectacle of the uh, alleged Conservative government starting in great haste to enact a few Conservative policies to try and win back all the Tories are so massively, massively pissed off and disillusioned with them. Every week brings another policy to shore up the blue wall. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think at the present rate, the Tories will be lucky to hold 130 seats at the 2024 election. And that is not because there's a marvellous Labour government in waiting. Far from it. There's a very below average Labour government in waiting. It's extremely depressing. But I do think a lot of the Conservatives that Rishi Sunak thinks he can rely on have already checked out. And that is the feedback from my post bag, which, as you know, Liam, is pretty big. My Telegraph focus group is telling me that they will not vote for the Conservative government because they will not be fooled again. And we have basically had a Tory government that campaigns as Conservative and governs as Liberal Democrat. And 
longtime Tory members are absolutely sick of their votes being harvested in that cynical manner. They believe their trust has been traduced. So I think we're heading for a huge election defeat and a massive ideological split in the Conservative Party. And those of us who would support a Nigel Lawson today and a Thatcher are going to be possibly forming a new party. That's a really big prediction. The Tories at the moment, of course, have, I think it's 355 seats. They went down to 165 in the Blair landslide in 1997, Mm -hmm. the first one that I reported as a political correspondent. And that was a complete wipeout. So you're talking, Alison, about a Conservative earthquake even bigger than 1997, even though the Tories are led by Starmer rather than Blair. Now, you have a really good track record of political prediction, in my experience, not least because you are so in touch with your electorate. And both of us get emails, don't we? Not Mm. just from Telegraph readers. We get emails from across the political spectrum because we're both sort of quite heterodox people in many, many ways. We, We fish in all kinds of different waters. I don't think we're tribally either of us really for one party or another we're discerning swing voters as I personally think all journalists should be but that's another conversation I don't reckon it's going to be that bad and I tell you why I don't reckon it's going to be that bad because Blair whatever you think of him was an electoral genius Mm. and he had around him very very smart people again whatever you think about them they really knew how to win elections Peter Mandelson is knocking about uh, Labour HQ again but I don't think the product he's working with is Tony Blair. I don't think Keir Starmer no. could ever have the appeal to Middle England that Tony Blair had. I just think he's too wet. He looks like a kind of manager of a regional branch of Next. <laughs> he doesn't look like a prime minister. He always looks as if he's about to burst into tears. Tony Blair looked <laughs> like the prime minister. He looked like a global statesman. He has a very, very serious brain. And he was determined not just to genuflect against the left. He was determined to bust the left up and really break them in two. After many, many years of conservative rule and Labour left-wing extremism, I don't think the plate tectonics of politics are currently where they were in 1997. I agree with you. As things stand, the Tories are going to lose and Labour are probably going to get a majority. Having said that, it is all about the economy, stupid. And if the economy comes back, if these green shoots of recovery that we've been talking about are allowed to flourish, if they reverse that ridiculous corporation tax rise and they start really trying to make life easier for lower middle-class, middle-income families that should be natural conservatives, I still think they could get at least to a hung parliament. Yeah, I think it's not about Keir Starmer winning it, you see. I agree. He, I mean, I voted for Tony Blair three times. I mean, I interviewed him a yeah. couple of times. I remember writing the Telegraph magazine that, you know, he was basically every woman's favourite son-in-law. That was his great gift, really, was to settle the anxiety of natural conservative voters about voting Labour. I don't think Starmer does that. Never. I think many of the people around him are very third rate. I hardly ever hear any of them say anything that really speaks to me. I just think, Liam, you cannot ignore how many of the Tory base 
have been massively disillusioned by this alleged Conservative government, which has been pursuing things that natural Tory voters find complete anathema. And I don't know, they haven't released the latest membership statistics, but I bet you it's probably, you know, two Jeffreys and a Marjorie left somewhere in Sutton Coldfield. But it's, Don't forget Alan. Don't forget Alan. Well, we're not going to have <laughs> the people who stuff the leaflets through their letterboxes, the people who stand shivering on street corners to persuade people. They are not going to do that anymore. They are done. And I think what we are seeing now is a very opportunistic attempt to reconnect with the base. And this week, you know, we saw something that I've been writing about personally for over a decade, which is this appalling, one of the great scandals of the modern era in our country, a great stain on our nation, which is the grooming gangs. Thousands of young, mainly young white girls, have been raped and trafficked by British Pakistani grooming gangs. And we every time this comes up, we have the Labour Party accusing those who draw attention to it, including Liam, members of their own party, their own MPs, their own home secretaries. It's racist. It's Islamophobic. It's a dog whistle. So we've got Suella Braverman, the latest brave volunteer, coming under furious attack from the left this week. She was out promoting the Tories' new policy on grooming gangs of mandatory reporting for suspected child abuse, absolutely not allowing so-called cultural sensitivities to dominate in this area and to prevent justice being done for so many of these damaged young women. And Suella Braverman, Home Secretary, was brutally honest. She said there is a predominance of certain ethnic groups, and I say British Pakistani males, who hold cultural values totally at odds with British values. Some of these councillors in Labour-run areas over a period of years have absolutely failed to take action because of cultural sensitivities. Here, here, absolutely true. Nothing to find fault with that at all. You know, down the years, we've had everyone from Jack Straw, Labour Home Secretary, 2011. White girls were seen as easy meat by Pakistani rapists. Sarah Champion, Labour MP for Rotherham, infamous Rotherham for all that terrible abuse. 2017, Champion was forced to resign as shadow women in Corbyn Sactor. Yeah, Corbyn Sactor. She wrote an article in The Sun. Britain has a problem with British Pakistani men raping and exploiting white girls. There, I said it, Sarah wrote, does that make me a racist or am I just prepared to call out this horrifying problem for what it is? And they were at it again. I'll let you get a word in edgeways in a minute, co-pilot, but you can tell this is something that just makes my blood boil. All those young girls abused by these horrendous people. Yvette Cooper, Shadow Home Secretary, sweet as pie on the telly, saying to Kay Burley, you can never allow any kind of sensitivities around race and ethnicity to prevent action on child sexual exploitation and abuse. And her own party has done that consistently for many, many years since 2004, when Anne Cryer, the wonderful Labour MP for Keesley, first raised the issue that young white girls in her constituency, were being sexually abused and trafficked. I think there's a real Red Wall Labour, Metropolitan London Labour split here, isn't there? The Metropolitan London Labour types, they don't want to talk about this. It's too difficult. 
you know, file it in the circular filing cabinet, i.e. the bin. <laughs> and then you've got the likes of Anne Cryer, the, the proud Yorkshire MP, fantastic woman, hugely brave. Sarah Champion, hugely brave. These are really top parliamentarians, in my view, Labour yeah. backbenchers who are prepared to fight their own party machine and to try and yank them in to the real world. I thought your column, Alison, in this week's paper was statistically very deft. Readers can have a look at it. It basically proved the assertion that the grooming gangs are unfortunately disproportionately Asian and Pakistani men. You proved that with your numbers in a very authoritative way. And this is the kind of thing that will let Labour down. They don't have on their front bench the likes of, as they had in 97, Robin Cook, Jack Straw, Mo Molum. No. Again, these are very impressive people and they were impressive in opposition and they were household names. And that's why a lot of Middle England, to coin a phrase, felt that they could vote for Labour safely. Exactly. But who is on the Labour front bench now that inspires any confidence outside of the tight circles of Westminster? They've got one or two... Very interesting people. I think Wes Streeting is a very interesting and smart and brave person, yeah. as we've often said on the podcast. I think Lisa Nandy could emerge as a major national figure. But after that, it's pretty thin gruel with all respect to the people concerned. And before we go, Alison, I do think we need to just mark the fact that Donald Trump has been arrested. Yes. And I set, want to set you a conundrum. Does that show that democracy is in rude health or is it failing? Does the fact that a former president has been arrested show that justice is blind and it applies to everybody? Or does it show, on the contrary and at the other end of the spectrum, that actually justice has now become completely politicised and an expedient and an electoral weapon? That really is the however many billion dollar, 60 billion dollar. That is question. a 40 marker, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I hold no brief for the man myself. I think he's a cynical opportunist. I don't think he's a Republican. And I think lots of the old guard, the Republicans, don't think he's a Republican. And they would much rather have Ron DeSantis, who would certainly be my preferred candidate for president. He's your new crush, isn't he? You, you've gone from Blair to, to Mark <laughs> Harper, because you like a natty Tory, but you've gone off him now that he's a transport secretary. Mr. Macron. Via Macron. And now you get all queasy and... Your, your tummy goes funny when you look at pictures of Ron DeSantis. Don't tell me, don't tell me he just started following you on Twitter, right? And you were thrilled. <laughs> I'm trying to interview him or stalk him. <laughs> Who is this mad Pearson lady? I mean, get her out of the way, man. And what is a pit pony anyway? What is a billet do? But look, so what have the Democrats done? They've given Trump fabulous publicity, haven't they? All the Trump supporters, all the Trump base, which is about 15 to 20% of the Republican supporters, they're now convinced that this is another witch hunt against their guy. And most significantly, Liam, Trump's lead over Ron DeSantis for the Republican nomination has jumped from 12 points to 30 points after his arrest. So, Let's just try and dig down into this. It's very, very complicated. But do the Democrats want Trump to be the candidate instead of DeSantis? Because I would argue that Biden would struggle a lot more against DeSantis than he would against Trump. So we are really 
in very, very murky, manipulative political waters. I would say this case in Manhattan, it makes me very uneasy. I think it's extremely thin. America's got a tradition of keeping its presidents out of legal actions. So Richard Nixon, one of the biggest crooks you could imagine, he didn't even have this treatment. Bill Clinton, who paid $850,000 to Paula Jones to settle out of court a sexual harassment case. A lot of these guys are from the same dog kennel, Liam. And I think you have to ask why are they going after Trump in this manner? I take your point about that justice should apply to all, but it has been very selectively applied in the past when they have chosen to protect the president from legal action, but they wanted to expose Trump to it. So I am minded to think that this is a very, very dodgy thing to do, and we could well end up with Donald Trump as the presidential nominee or Republican nominee in 2022 for with him in the middle of a legal action okay so i'll tell you what i think the 40 marker that i set you Mm. beta minus by the way the 40 i've given a very good explanation halligan (laughs) but you didn't answer the question pearson answer the question i did what did what bit didn't i answer the 40 marker is does the fact that somebody who's recently the u.s president can be arrested and is arrested, does that mean democracy is in rude health? Or does it mean that democracy is completely politically twisted? And I'm afraid I think it's the latter. So do I. And in fact, it's worse than that. The thing I always tell myself about politics is however cynical you are, it's never enough. And this is what I think is going on. Yes, you're right. Putting Trump in the dock means that his support goes up among his base. It makes it more likely that he gets the nomination over DeSantis, but that putting him in the dock makes it less likely that he can win the election against Biden because so many people who aren't his base will be so deeply shocked and they'll be sick of him and they'll think it represents America going completely down the pan. Now, it strikes me that the Democrats want to make this as politicised as possible in order to stir up Trump's base, in order to make sure that he gets the nomination. That's why they're holding it in New York, which, of course, is Democrat central. It's one of the most Democrat major cities in America. So they are deliberately almost trying to provoke the mainstream media to portray this as a political operation, which it is in order to stir up Trump's base to deliver him as the candidate, precisely as you say, because he's less likely to beat Biden. I think DeSantis would knock Biden out of the ballpark, as they say in America, because he's new, because he's fresh, because he isn't Trump and he isn't Biden. And he doesn't seem to be part of the sort of endless dynasty of American politics. They're Bushes, they're Clintons, they're the same people that have been knocking around for Mm. years and years and years. So I think this is a deliberate ploy by the Democrats to deliver Trump to the presidential podium to run off against Biden. And that's the only way I think Biden stands a chance. A minus. War in Ukraine is reshaping our world. For the past 12 months, the Telegraph's team of experts in London and correspondents on the ground have been analysing Putin's invasion of Ukraine every weekday on the Ukraine The Latest podcast. With over 24 million listens, 
Ukraine The Latest is the go-to source for up-to-date analysis on the war from every angle. Military, humanitarian, political, economic, historical, just to name a few. Each episode, we unpack the past 24 hours of the conflict, as well as regularly being joined by our own on-the-ground correspondents and guests who take us into their own experience of the war. Search for Ukraine The Latest in the same place you're listening to this podcast and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. And now on to our latest Planet Normal guest. Former Supreme Court Judge Jonathan Sumption was one of the seven lockdown heroes who featured on last week's podcast. But as promised, we wanted to feature more of our conversation with Lord Sumption, one of the UK's foremost legal minds. Despite his impeccable establishment credentials, Jonathan Sumption was an early critic of lockdown. He first appeared on Planet Normal in September 2020 and emerged as a highly influential voice on the UK's response to the COVID virus. And since the Telegraph's exposure of the lockdown files featuring those ministerial WhatsApp messages, Lord Sumption has railed against what he describes as, quotes, the narcissism, the superficiality, the hypocrisy of the UK government during that period. So I asked Lord Sumption which minister he was thinking of in particular. I was thinking particularly of Matt Hancock, because what emerged most clearly from the lockdown files was the man's extraordinary vanity, uh, his self-assurance in the face of dissent, and his sheer refusal to engage with it. It seemed to me that those were all characteristics of somebody who was delighted in the exercise of crude power and had ceased to be interested in the real justification for it. The WhatsApp messages show, of course, that decisions were made on the hoof. The idea of following the science, whatever the science is, was risible. There was narcissism, superficiality, as you've said. They weren't the complete picture, were they? Because, of course, there would have been in-person meetings, Zoom meetings, other memos, and so on. But what do you think those WhatsApp messages tell us about how we're ruled today? I think they tell us quite a lot about how we were ruled then. The basic function of the Prime Minister is to coordinate the government's response dealing not only with a single departmental concern like health, but marrying together considerations of educational policy, economic policy, financial policy, as well as health policy. What really went wrong during the lockdown is that nobody took the whole picture into account. They just looked at the health consequences and not all of the health consequences. So that what you had was a serious failure of government, a serious failure to work out in advance where this was going and to look at every consideration and not just the ones that were of major concern to a frightened public. You've sat on the Supreme Court for many years, Lord Sumption, until 2018. You've been at the pinnacle, if I may say so, of our legal establishment for many, many years as a distinguished QC, now KC, of course, what do you think those WhatsApp messages tell us about the state of the UK? Have they undermined your faith in the process of British government? Not entirely. What they tell us is a great deal about the setup at the time that Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, supported, if that's the right word, 
by a cabinet chosen exclusively for their personal loyalty to him. We are in a somewhat better position now because one of the striking and reassuring things about the way the British Constitution works is that if you violate its basic principles, you get ejected. I was pessimistic before Boris Johnson was ejected. I think that what his ejection shows is that if you are completely unfit for office, sooner or later, the system will vomit you out. And it did. What is it about the British state, how we govern ourselves, Jonathan Sumption, that means while the Swedes and the French have already completed their lockdown inquiries, we've barely began ours. Why is that? The basic problem is that for about 50 years now, public inquiries have become increasingly legalised and judicialised. They are regarded as occasions for everyone to have their say, for victims to achieve what is sometimes called closure, rather than to ascertain the facts. When you judicialise proceedings like this, you have endless cross-examination, huge numbers of documents produced, a much more sensible system, which was, for example, adopted by the Swedes, would be to have a body of experts who will use such evidence as they think is necessary, rather than what anyone else might think necessary, to arrive at the facts, and will form a judgment. That is what the Swedes did. Their report is a thorough piece of work. It doesn't entirely vindicate what the Swedes did, although it does vindicate the major things about what they did, namely to avoid lockdowns. So it seems to me that is a model of what we should be doing instead of having this kind of quasi-forensic process, which lasts a very long time. Is there more we can learn from the Swedes, Lord Sumption, when she interviewed Anders Tegnell? Alison Pearson highlighted that the Swedes have a constitutional arrangement where medical situations are managed by medics and scientists, not by elected politicians via WhatsApp. Is that a safeguard that we could introduce into our system? Well, I'm cherry about that, because if we had had such a system, presumably it would have been Messrs. Valence and Witty, who would have been the official deciders, and they showed themselves to be pretty indifferent to any of the wider consequences of what they were doing. They might have behaved differently if they'd been asked to decide the whole issue, but I wonder. So I think that I'm not against the notion that politicians should ultimately decide. Indeed, I think that politicians are probably the only people who can decide in the round, taking account of all the social, educational, financial and economic factors, as well as the epidemiological ones. What I do think, however, is that the lesson that we must learn is that we need competent politicians at the heart of government. Unfortunately, although we often do have competent politicians at the heart of our government, we did not have them at the time of the pandemic. As you wrote earlier this month, Lord Sumption, no government anywhere has previously sought to deal with an epidemic disease by closing down much of society, and no society has ever improved public health by making itself poorer. So something has changed. What has changed that meant that we did that this time round? The public seems to be more easily frightened. They seem to have unrealistic ideas of what the government can do. Is it social media, perhaps? I mean, I 
agree with what you've just said. Indeed, it's substantially what I said in my article earlier this month. I think people expect more of the state than it is reasonable to expect. And I think that politicians are too ready to encourage their belief that they can do wonders because it serves their own agenda. I think that this is a very difficult problem to resolve. It's always been the case that if you frighten people enough, they will submit to almost anything. The moral is that we should not have a government that tries to achieve its aims by frightening its own people. How surprised are you that they were the tactics employed by a British government in a country where, as you've said rightly, we have a liberal tradition, a liberal tradition that's protected us from those kind of behaviours? At least we hoped that they did. I think that there are many things that can't be regulated by rules. They can only be regulated by a culture of responsible government and shared political standards. Those standards in many areas have tended to decline over the years, and this was a good example of it. It's a matter for governments to decide how they are going to put over the message. But I think that of all the countries that had lockdowns, the government messaging in this country was probably the most irresponsible. It's the reason, or one of the reasons, why we have found it so difficult to recover economically from the consequences of the pandemic. People were too frightened by the government's own messaging. Other countries which adopted a more responsible approach have fared rather better as a result. We're proud that on Planet Normal, Lord Sumption, we gave voice to the likes of Shinetra Gupta, the likes of Jay Bhattacharya, the world-class epidemiologists who championed the Great Barrington Declaration, the idea of limited shielding, the shielding of the vulnerable as their choice rather than an across-the-board lockdown. Is that an approach as a non-scientist like Alison and I, but a keen observer, that you think would have worked better? I'm sure that it would have done, and it's substantially what the Swedes did do. They had responsible messaging. They focused very much on encouraging the vulnerable to take steps for their own self-preservation. They avoided a lockdown. They avoided the worst of the economic and societal consequences of the pandemic, whereas we got the worst of it. I think it's very much something that we should have done. And strikingly, it was exactly what Sage recommended we should have done before the lockdown itself occurred and before the scientists moved into propaganda mode. The, the two great lessons that you get from reading the sage advice in the last couple of weeks before the lockdown was, first of all, treat people like adults and give them advice rather than coercion. And secondly, remember that the priority is to protect the vulnerable and not to go for blanket solutions, particularly in the case of a virus which, while it could infect anybody, only made certain categories seriously ill or actually killed them. I'm going to ask you to be honest, not that you're not always honest, but... Well, I do try. Don't spare any feelings when you answer this question, Lord Sumption. During lockdown, how did the British media do? The British media varied very much. The BBC, which is probably the most influential single media organ, I'm sorry to be saying that on your podcast, but it's a fact, was consistently pro-lockdown. It was, of course, under threat to its financial model from the government, and it therefore wanted to show that it was good boys. 
Within the BBC, I know for certain that there were a variety of opinions, but the one which they chose to concentrate on was that the lockdown was a great idea, that people who were sceptical were being antisocial, and there was very little to show that there was an alternative view held by responsible people. As a matter of fact, that still seems to be the position of the BBC. They're still running articles about long COVID and the like, and no articles, or very few articles, about those things that suggest that a mistake was made. For the print media, I mean, obviously, it ranged from The Guardian at one extreme, which was extremely pro-lockdown and took a line pretty similar to that of the BBC, although I should say that they allowed me to write an article suggesting otherwise, and they occasionally you get uh, a glimpse of the same view from other people. At one extreme, The Guardian. At the other, I suppose, uh, The Telegraph, which was sceptical from the outset about the value of lockdowns and gave a platform to a lot of people who I think should have been listened to more carefully. So the print media did its job, in other words. There was a range of views, but the broadcasters didn't. Well, if you take the broadcast section as a whole, there were, of course, plenty of broadcasters who were lockdown sceptical as well. The BBC is certainly the biggest of them. But if you look at the private radio and TV stations, they were much more varied in their doubt. You've shown a little bit of sympathy for Boris Johnson in your writing, Lord Sumption. You said he always recognised the totalitarian implications of his administration's measures but he never had the courage of those convictions. He lacked the application, you wrote, to get to the bottom of the scientific evidence, and he was constantly manipulated by those around him whose agenda was based on little more than public relations. Do you have any sympathy for him? I think that his heart was often in the right place, but it's no good having your heart in the right place if you're not in a position to do something about it. To do something about it, you need stature, a certain amount of confidence, and above all, you need to be master of the detail so that you can require the experts around you to justify their positions. I don't think Boris Johnson was ever capable of that. Given your legal background, I wonder, Lord Sumption, whether or not you think there will be multiple class actions related to the damage done during lockdown, given what we've read in the lockdown files, given what might come to light during the public inquiry? I think not, and I certainly hope not. I think not because there is no known cause of action in English law of not being a very good government. And I hope not because it seems to me that to make the judiciary as opposed to a democratic legislature the ultimate judge of political wisdom would be a serious mistake. Do you not think, though, there's some case for compensation given that... People went through such incredible suffering, weren't allowed to say goodbye to loved ones. Businesses were crushed, all of it based on, you know, not scientific evidence, but as we've learned through, in your words, narcissism and superficiality. No, I don't think that. I certainly think that it's, uh, in one sense, unfortunate that there will be no right of compensation. But in far more important sense, it's the right state of affairs for the law to take. I think that the most important consideration is what would such an action do for our lines of constitutional responsibility? There are many things, including this one, for which a government ought to be accountable 
to a democratic legislature. And it seems to me that it's right that we should say goodbye to concepts like compensation in order to make that effective. We are, after all, a democracy, and it is the elected representatives of the people who ought to be holding governments to account, not judges. Lord Sumption, great to have you once again on Planet Normal. Bye-bye. I could listen to him for hours, Liam. I mean, it was a great piece of luck, wasn't it, for the lockdown sceptic cause that we had Lord Sumption providing that tremendous sort of intellectual and moral ballast. I thought he said some very interesting things, clearly casting doubt on the wisdom of this quasi-forensic judicial process, which is going to be the COVID inquiry, quite likely to be exhaustive, hugely expensive and going on for many, many years and not coming up with anything that we'd be very impressed with. And also his very pointed criticism of the broadcasters during lockdown, uh, particularly the BBC. Yes, I do think he emerged as uh, a pivotal figure. I first saw Jonathan Sumption in full flight when he was a leading silk in the huge corporate inquiry into rail track of many years ago. And he was formidable in court, but he's formidable out of court as well. I think we would both of us grudgingly, wouldn't we, have to give him an alpha? <laughs> I don't think Jonathan Sumption's used to getting anything less than A star, 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 star. We should say to Planet Normal listeners that one of the things that unites us is that we got ones in our S levels, didn't we? English and economics. <laughs> I didn't do economics. You already did English. Yes. I did English and history. Okay. <laughs> Those are the glittering prizes of our long lost youth. We peaked too young. Now it's time for our listener emails. The messages you send to Planet Normal at Telegraph. .co.uk. Got a huge response to the lockdown special. Great praise for all our marvellous lockdown heroes. This is from Russ. I just wanted to say how fantastic your work is and your unswerving determination to expose the truth. Lockdown was a disaster. I'm so angry with how we were duped, nudged and lied to. My son's A-levels were ruined and we'd invested our life savings into his education by choosing to go private. It's left us penniless and with a feeling of resentment towards the so-called people in power. That Hancock guy has no shame, along with a lot of them. He tried to force an experiment onto our children. Luckily, my younger son of 16 didn't have the jab, but my elder one did because he was forced to for travelling purposes. Heads must roll, but I suspect the establishment will close ranks and protect those lunatics. It seems we reward incompetence by making them knights of the realm. The whole system sucks. Arise, Lady Pearson and Sir Liam. I say I. I think it's going to be a long time into the co-pilot awkward squad. I tell you what, he's really going for the mug there, isn't he, with the rise <laughs> yes, Lady Pearson? He, you know, he, he knows which buttons to press. So have you got your coronation invitation yet? <laughs> it's lost in the post, but we know the post is very unreliable these days, Halligan. So Andrew says, I listened to Planet Normal right from the very beginning as I went on my rounds delivering meds from our local pharmacy to the elderly housebound and care home residents. You should be justly proud of yourselves by standing up against the onslaught of contrary opinions promoted by the blob. Unfortunately, as I know all too well, the fear campaign has had lasting consequences and many, many people are still terrified of COVID and still believe lockdowns are the way forward. Please keep on with the fight against the censorship. I should just say, Andrew, quite quickly that 
all the pharmacists and their staff did incredible work during the pandemic. This is from Denise. First of all, a brilliant couple of lockdown retrospective episodes. Thank you, says Denise. A new survey suggests only 33% of the population now thinks that the NHS is doing a good job. To me, that sounds like an opportunity for a political party with big hojones, one of Liam's words, to grab mm-hmm. this and start making meaningful, dare I say, drastic changes to how healthcare is delivered in this country. Time to give people agency over how they source the care they need. Give everyone a voucher or an allowance they can use to purchase the care they need from private providers. Those providers will compete to get more customers driving efficiency into the system. It may persuade them to ditch the thousands of non-jobs, diversity officers, anyone, contributing nothing but costs funded by hard-pressed taxpayers. It may even focus individuals on taking better care of themselves to prevent lifestyle illnesses. Obesity, says Denise, is now the second biggest cause of cancer after smoking. Either way, it's an opportunity the Tories should grab before Wes Streeting does that Labour Shadow Health Secretary, as we mentioned. Keep up the sterling word, your faithful listener since day one, Denise. Thanks for that, Denise. Good ideas there. This is from Beth, not her real name, for reasons that will become apparent. Dear Alison and Liam, I was shocked and saddened by Nadine Doris's message on mental health, as reported in The Telegraph. The four child suicides in closed facilities in one month, as opposed to the previous six suicides over 12 months, is not alarming to Nadine, apparently. The reason being the exponential increase in the need for beds in such places over the past months. One can only despair at such callous, willful blindness. Why does Nadine Doris think that sudden increases in serious mental health referrals happened in the first place? And why is that not alarming to her? I don't wish to be named, but I work in a secondary school and we have lost two students and one staff member to suicide within the past three years. Overdoses and self-harm are rife among the students. The constant pressure of 24-7 internet connectivity and social media have a big hand in this. But let us not ever deny what we have done to these children over the past years with lockdowns. I am so incredibly angry. I don't know how to move on somehow other than to keep busy and try to help them the best I can on a one-by-one basis. As you said on the recent podcast, Alison, this ordeal, including the utter despair and deception of our fellow humans, has changed me forever. Thank you, Beth. This is from Paula. I really enjoyed the last two episodes of Planet Normal and want to thank you for keeping the conversation going. I've listened to every podcast all through the pandemic and I have a Planet Normal mug, says Paula. The weekly sanity and comfort was one of the major things that got me through it all in one piece. But your two latest lockdown episodes stirred a renewed anger in me. I worked frontline throughout in the mental health field and it was so difficult trying to support people with severe mental health issues and staff, trying to help them navigate senseless rules, all of us fearing for our lives, then as a single person coming home to an empty lonely home, not able to see my children, my grandchildren or my parents and friends for any support or indeed to be able to support them in turn. I cried a lot says Paula. I remember in the early days driving to work along strange, empty, deserted ghost streets, just crying whilst driving before having to pull myself together to go in and manage a home and being brave enough to try and help others feel okay. I'll never forget how it felt when my daughter stated to me that I would be unable to visit my grandchildren that I had up to that day been so involved with and later, as soon as I was allowed, 
trying to maintain a relationship with them through an open window two metres away, keeping cheery for their sakes, then breaking down as soon as I turned the corner to leave them. I'll never forget the look on my young grandson's face one day, too young to understand why Nana wasn't inside giving hugs and playing with toys, as I always had, and could actually see his brain trying to figure it out. It was heartbreaking. What damage has all this done to the young? Time will certainly tell, and I'm not looking forward to the reveal. Like so many others, we lost an elderly family member who died alone, scared and bewildered in a care home in frankly unimaginable circumstances that we have not even begun to process yet. I'm left with so much anger towards the government for all that happened. I actually had to stop reading the WhatsApp messages in the end. It was all too much. What makes me most furious is the lack of any sincere apology from those who damaged the economy and its inhabitants by the scaremongering, the mad rules whilst doing whatever the hell they wanted themselves, refusing to acknowledge and think about the other medical diagnoses that would suffer and lack of planning around those other areas of health, and now the refusal to encourage the much-needed damage report to be completed or even started. I can only pray that privately lessons have been learned, even if there's no admitting this publicly. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your wonderful podcast. Can I move to Sweden, Paula? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Paula, for that wonderful, extremely evocative email. A lot of emails coming in about the dreadful grooming gangs. This is from John. The grooming gangs operate almost exclusively under Labour councils voted in by large Pakistani communities. The police have failed to investigate reported cases. It is stunning to think that there were 1,510 verified cases of the victims of grooming gangs in Rotherham alone, but police have virtually no descriptive details of the Asian offenders. Official figures contain only a tiny number of Pakistani offenders of crimes that they have been committing on an industrial scale for decades. And Hugo says, this is Hugo responding to my column on the grooming gangs, which you will be able to find a link to in the show notes. Hugo says, for several years, The Guardian ran a series of hit pieces on anyone who blew the whistle on the grooming gangs, accusing them naturally of racism and Islamophobia. While I still read the Grauniad, for balance, I promise you, says Hugo, you could see the anger in some of their own supporters who were routinely censored for commenting under articles that attempted to excuse the Asian communities most often committing the crimes. People who were reliably lefty on any other issue were absolutely appalled, but The Guardian evidently didn't want to hear it, like the BBC. If you want to trace the beginning of when the Red Wall began to crumble, it was that moment. That was when the left betrayed their core voters for the minority that gave them the mayoralty of London. It was also, incidentally, when I stopped reading The Guardian. Well, welcome to The Telegraph, Hugo. And this is from Richard. Congratulations on the lockdown anniversary episodes and even more so for your brave journalism and campaigning on the issue over these last three years. At the start of the pandemic, I was a Times reader, says Richard, warming to this theme. But I soon found the paper seemed to be doggedly sticking to the government line when there were obvious questions arising about the response to the pandemic. I found those questions asked and sometimes answered in the Telegraph and have long since switched loyalties. I remember one graph in particular from the Times trotted out almost daily, tracking the number of cases over time and showing them fall after lockdown was introduced. But I learned from Planet Normal that the equivalent graph for Sweden followed the same curve with nary a lockdown in sight. 
As a minor Twitter user with a couple of hundred followers, I was shocked by the stick I got for questioning things like that time graph. I can't begin to imagine the pressure you two must have been under, getting all sorts of abuse online and being shunned by some of your colleagues in journalism. There were times when people who knew nothing of these matters would cheerfully dismiss an Oxford professor of epidemiology as a nitwit or declare that a man who's been both a leading historian and a Supreme Court judge is a fool. Eminent as Professor Shanetta Gupta and Jonathan Sumption are, if Planet Normal hadn't given them a platform during the pandemic, they'd have come dangerously close to being cancelled, which was clearly the government's intention. Who wants to hear from brilliant minds during the crisis? My own lockdown experience seemed fine at first. I congratulated myself that as a family we weren't panicking. The kids weren't getting much homework, but they were doing everything asked. I naively gave them free reign with their smartphones, thinking it was a way for them to stay in touch with their friends, who they were barred from seeing. To my horror, they both fell victim to some nasty stuff online that's too personal for me to outline, but would never have happened had they not been trapped at home for months. Once or twice a week we'd take shopping to my elderly dad, and my son would come with me for the ride. The motorway was lined with massive signs, stay at home. Well, my son did for the next two and a half years. Before the pandemic, he played in the park every day on his way home from school. After, it took years for him to regain his social confidence. My daughter's mental health issues are too upsetting for me to tell you about, but thankfully, I think they're both getting over these problems now. Thanks again for your work since this nightmare began in March 2020. Being a part of a minority who questioned the response to the pandemic was a truly bonding experience, and I'll be reading your columns and listening to your brilliant podcast for the rest of my life. Best wishes, Richard. Oh, what a fantastic email, Liam. We are blessed with the most wonderful listeners, aren't we? We certainly are. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. Alison, it's your turn. Well, I'm going to have the wisdom of King Solomon. We cannot decide between Paula and Richard. So for two very special emails for our lockdown anniversary, Paula and Richard, you will both be winners of the highly coveted Planet Normal mugs. Please send us your address and details. Indeed, and put in those emails, mug winner in the subject heading. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Delia Lampett and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>